welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Tarun and I chat with Andy Chorlian. We talk about his journey, starting as a MakerDAO dev all the way to NBA Top Shot star, and how this has influenced his new project, Fractional, and how it connects to the Pleaser DAO, a DAO that has recently outbid the competition and bought the Edward Snowden NFT. This episode really explores the connection between NFTs, DAOs, and DeFi, and how these overlaps could enable some truly futuristic ways to allocate value and create value. Now, before we start in, I want to remind you to check out the ZK Jobs board that I mentioned last week. I update this every month to coincide with the ZK Jobs Fair. I also recommend you sign up for the Zero Knowledge Announcement Newsletter to stay up to date about all the activity over here in the Zero Knowledge community. And it's hard to keep track. Do join our Telegram group to join the conversation. And I've also added the links to both the ZK Jobs board and the Zero Knowledge Announcement Newsletter in the show notes. I now want to take a moment to thank this week's sponsor and a ZK-focused project that I'm proud to be advising on, Mina. Mina is the world's lightest blockchain, powered by participants. It is a layer one protocol creating a private gateway between the real world and crypto. The entire chain is about 22 kilobytes, thanks to ZK Snarks. The layer one protocol replaces the traditional blockchain with the zero-knowledge proof, ensuring a super light and constant-sized chain. This allows participants to quickly sync and verify the network. The entire chain is, and will always be, around 22 kilobytes, even as it scales. And snark-powered dApps, called SNAPs, allow access to verified real-world data from any website for on-chain use. The ecosystem is growing fast, and Mina's mainnet has just gone live, which offers users a platform to build a private gateway between the real world and crypto. To find out more, visit minaprotocol.com. I've added the link in the show notes. So thank you again, Mina. Now here is the conversation between Andy, Tarun, and myself. Today, Tarun and I chat with Andy Chorlian from The Fractional Project, and he's also part of something called PleaserDAO. So welcome to the show, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So maybe to start off, tell us a little bit about what Fractional is and also what PleaserDAO is. Yeah, for sure. So Fractional is a new project that I started working on a few months ago, and it's focused around uh, fractionalization of NFTs which have obviously NFTs have kind of captured a lot of the crypto Twitter sphere and, and general uh, like mindshare over the last couple months. And I got pretty interested in them over the last half of a year or so, or now even a little longer than that. Um, and so fractional uh, as a protocol is going to allow you to take an NFT or a basket of NFTs and lock them up into what we're calling a vault and then create uh, fractional ownership tokens of that NFT uh, that mm. are just normal ERC-20 tokens. So that's fractional. And then PleaserDAO is kind of this new strange DAO that that popped up back when PeoplePleaser released her uh, X times Y equals K NFT on Foundation. And I was actually part of the initial little group chat to form PleaserDAO. One of uh, one of my friends, Jameis, messaged myself and a couple of the people and said, hey, this thing is really cool. Do you want to try to buy this? And we were like, 
yeah, sure, let's do it. Uh, and mm-hmm. we didn't really know it was going to turn into what it, what it has turned into. There were, there were a lot more people who were interested than we expected. Uh, and now it's kind of formed into a bit of a bigger uh, collective of generally DeFi people who are interested in, in art and NFTs and, and DeFi stuff. Mm. And Tarun, are you part of this too? I am, I am. I was also in this Genesis uh, group of people. Ah. But I regret not, uh, not as they say, aping in more. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to this later on in the episode. Um, right now, I want to hear a little bit about your background. Let's like let's go back pre-crypto. Where were you at and kind of what led you to here? Yeah, sure. So I went to school for computer engineering. And I didn't really know it. So at the time, I thought I was interested in hardware. I wasn't interested in hardware. Um, <laughs> I learned that. Um, that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And so then I found myself at a, a pretty generic uh, software company. It was owned by Fidelity called eMoney, doing um, hmm. uh, like general kind of like backend work, uh, working in C Sharp. Uh, I was there for around a year, and this was from 2016 to like 2017 summer. And kind of in in early in the early spring that year, I had started to get interested in crypto, and this all stemmed from wanting to uh, gamble on an offshore sports gambling website and not wanting to give them my credit card. And okay. so I, down- I downloaded Coinbase <laughs> and started was like, all right, what what are these things that I'm buying? And I just got like totally captivated by it and uh, just realized that this was something that I was extremely interested in and that I thought was just so so cool. And so then I was lucky enough in August of 2017 to get a job at a, a fintech startup in New York uh, that was tangentially interested in crypto and they knew I was interested in crypto. And so I kind of fell into a position where I got to learn Solidity on the job and mm. we made an ERC-20 token and did all that fun stuff. And so I worked there for about a year. For a while, I was the only crypto person on the team. And then we eventually brought on Noah Zinsweister from Uniswap uh, prior to him being at mm. Uniswap. And I worked with him for a <laughs> bit. Uh, and then around the same time, this was towards the end of 2018, I had left to go to Maker. And I spent two years-ish at Maker on the smart contracts team doing a little bit of everything that we need to do for the smart contracts team. And so for a while, that was uh, prepping for MCD's release yeah. and uh, a lot of the formal verification and testing around that. When I joined, a lot of the code was already completed. And then a lot of the stuff that came after that with Black Thursday and working on new liquidation systems, and which actually I think just released today for Link, uh, which is exciting. And then Wait, also... what's Black Thursday? So, oh man. All right. <laughs> oh yeah. So this? this Am I was... supposed to know this? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, this is like the biggest day in DeFi. Uh, it's oh. like the big crash. I, we've talked about it on the show before, maybe not. Really? That. Yes. Damn it. It's Sorry. March 12th, 2020. Yeah. So this was right as COVID was kind of really uh, coming into its own, which is a weird thing to say about a, a <laughs> pandemic. Oh, was this but... just the day that everything crashed? Yeah. Oh, wait. Is this the day that everything crashed and makers, like, what are they called? CDPs all got called? Yeah. Uh-huh. So I was at the time, uh, my girlfriend, Allie, was working and living in London. And so I was visiting her in London. And so the crash happened pretty early in the morning, US time. And so I was like sitting at a coffee shop, eating some lunch and just, you know, like on my laptop. And all of a sudden I see all these messages come in, like, 
what are you guys seeing what's happening what's going on and i was like oh crap that i grabbed all my stuff and left the coffee shop and went back to her apartment and essentially what happened was crypto and what well, kind of everything flash crashed yes. and what we learned was the maker liquidation systems were not totally prepared for a massive flash crash. Uh, mm-hmm. But also there was a lot of other stuff that was going on. There was uh, difficulty getting transactions through to maker. And I mean, some people even still think there could have been some type of minor manipulation there. Uh, I didn't spend enough time to really have strong feelings about that. But essentially what ended up happening is when CDPs are liquidated, they basically go up for auction and mm-hmm. someone was putting up bids that were extremely low you know, one GUI bids. And the the bid length was only 10 minutes. And so after 10 minutes, if no one had outbid you, you would win. And people just weren't prepared for this and were having trouble getting transactions through. And so the, the gas fees were insanely high. And so, for example, wow. the Maker's Keeper Network code had like a hard cap on gas fees at like 400 GUI. And I think it was up more in like the 500 range. So none of the bots would work and they couldn't get transactions through. And so a lot of a lot of CDPs were liquidated for basically nothing. And so that was Black Thursday. And you were at Maker at that time. Yeah. Uh, the rest of my time in London, I basically spent working. Wait, can we get a little color on like what it's like being a developer in the war room on Black Thursday? Because like that's probably one of the, since 2017, certainly the craziest day. Of course, you know, prior to 2017, there was can you stop trading and things like that. But like that was the craziest day. You're working at the developer that, made the thing that was losing the most money and had the most at stake. Like, what was it like just stress-wise? And like, you know, that's different than like being on call at a tech company, right? This is like potentially hundreds of millions of dollars are like about to be liquidated. Well, yeah. So it was really stressful. I think one of the hardest parts too was because it's all smart contracts and kind of code as law, we felt a little bit helpless in a lot of things. And so Part of it was once we kind of realized what was happening, uh, oracles would update every hour, and so every hour you would have a you know you'd have a wave of liquidations, and so most of those liquidations happened over a period of a couple hours, and so then it was trying to figure out like the first couple waves we just didn't really have time to appropriately respond and like figure anything out, um, mm. and then relatively quickly after that um, some people spun up just like some internal code so that like we as employees could bid on these things or like anyone like anyone who had money and wanted to try to bid on these CDPs that were being liquidated, could try to come in and like just help. Like I was literally on Etherscan trying to put through uh, bids on on different CDPs that were being liquidated, wow. um, and that was what was hard about it. So you know we couldn't just like push a code through because Maker Governance has a has a whole governance process and all this. It, it was hard. Um, there was a a lot of internal discussion about calling emergency shutdown and what that would do. Uh, I think that was really where the the stress came in. It was there was a group of people who felt that we should call and like shut down the system, and a group of people who were like, no, that's not the right way to handle the situation. Um, and I think th- in the end, the right decision was made not to shut shut everything down. But it was very stressful. And, and then a lot of what came after that, after the first couple hours, was just like an insane amount of calls trying to figure out what do we do, how do we how do we rectify this, how do we calculate what the damage done actually was. Um, and like kind of what what is our process to move forward from this? Wow. But wait, they could have stopped it? When you say shut it down, that's sort of surprising to me that that was even an option. Well, so so MakerDAO, the protocol has an emergency shutdown uh, where if you burn 50,000 MKR, it basically just kind of ceases the protocol. And there's a whole unwinding that, that comes along with that and stuff. Um, 
But so that was basically the conversation was, you know, is the fallout that's going to come from calling emergency shutdown and basically you'd, we'd have to, you'd basically have to rebootstrap die. You'd have to start over again. Uh, yeah. Versus the fallout of people losing money from CDPs getting liquidated for next to nothing, uh, kind of weighing those pros and cons and, and figuring that out. And for the record, that is probably one of the most extreme engineering situations I think any anyone has lived in in crypto that day. Not just for uh, Maker, but like BitMEX went down. Uh, I mean, that led to BitMEX's collapse in a lot of ways, was how much money people lost that day due to, to systems failing. So like the craziest stress test of all of the engineering in this industry took place on Monday during this wow. crazy crash. And it's important not to understate that because it's, you know, most networks, especially new networks, like have never even come close to dealing with like 50% of their network getting like liquidated all at once. In like 12 hours or something. One hour. Yeah. For, not for even. Bitmex. I mean, BitMEX, no. like, yeah, BitMEX was a crazy thing when that happened. Yeah, that is crazy to think about. Like, in my mind, I, I have a hard time imagining what could possibly happen that could be a more like catastrophic market event than that for, for a system like maker at least. And if they were able to withstand that and continue to like go through, it's like, it would have to be a, a bug in the code that actually broke the system at this point. It feels like for That's the only thing worse <laughs> for it to collapse. Yeah. You know, after the most calamitous collapse in this industry, then, you know, we had this crazy insane bull market and part of the bull market was really driven by yield farming and and sort of these protocols giving out tokens to users directly, which is a very different model than like proof of stake networks where you sell the tokens or distribute tokens up front instead of like distributing them to users per se. It's, it's a kind of different go-to-market model. And in the process, you got involved at Yearn pretty heavily. So I think maybe walk us through how your DGEN habits uh, somehow somehow made it on chain. Yeah, so I was actually, all things considered, I would say I was a tiny bit late to DeFi summer for a bit. I was, So I, uh, when YFI came out and there was that one week of farming, I was on vacation with my girlfriend's family and I missed all of that farming. So that was a bummer. But what I found really, really interesting about like a lot of DeFi summer and all of that was a lot of this, the strategies and, and figuring out how to more efficiently farm and do all that stuff. And so back in like September, October, I started to get pretty active in, in Yearn and like the strategist group as that was kind of starting to be built out a little bit more. And so what I was primarily focused on at that point was um, sushi swap farming. So they were like pretty generic uh, strategies, which were, you know, you were depositing uh, liquidity positions into uh, a yearn vault and farming sushi tokens. And then part of the interesting evolution of these strategies was yearn's kind of change in relationship with sushi. And it, it created some interesting problems where originally we were farming and dumping sushi tokens and then yearn kind of, you know, creates a pretty strong working relationship with sushi. And so at that point we changed the strategy from farming and dumping sushi to farming sushi and staking it in X sushi and mm. earning more X sushi. Yeah, so that was kind of a fun part of the DeFi summer for me was trying to figure out more like programmatic ways to to be involved and also help other people do the ridiculous things that I was doing because there was there was a period of time in like September where I was just like not really sleeping and just 
aping money into <laughs> oh, every no. single like Asian food name. Did you did you protocol. still have a job at Maker at this time? I was, yeah, I was still working at Maker. <laughs> but I'm yeah. sure everyone at Maker was doing this because like we were we were all in a group chat together all yeah. day. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's like you're already in the weeds. Like yeah. <laughs> Well, and that's where having people who you know and trusted in the space was insanely valuable. Because yeah. so we had a we had a signal chat with like ten people in it, and it was a lot of smart contract developers. And one person would find a, a new farm and they'd post it in the signal chat, and we would all pull it up on our code diffs and stuff, and we'd look through it and go, "Yep, looks good to me." And then we'd all just dive in right at the start. We'd have like <laughs> timers and keep each other all ready Jesus. and stuff. It was it was a really weird time. Very bonding, though. It sounds like a fun game with some friends. Like summer camp COVID edition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, so before, you know, kind of after you learned a lot about DeFi Summer, you decided, hey, I'm going to go for Maker, you know, which was an organization, I suppose, at this point is more like in maintenance mode than in like in adding new products mode at a high velocity because it has a ton of value in it. So it can't like move quickly as quickly. Uh, to somewhere kind of smaller. So maybe you want to walk us through that and then how that led to you becoming the face of, of NBA Top Shots in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, what you said is exactly right. I, I kind of, I found myself, so DeFi Summer kind of reignited in me, like remembering just how cool Ethereum is. Um, there was a period of time kind of while Mall Maker was in maintenance and stuff where it was really easy to just be tangentially involved on Twitter and tweet about stuff for once in a while and then do my nine to five solidity work and, and kind of call it a day. Uh, and DeFi Summer was just so insane. And I was like, oh, this is really fun. This is this is what's really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I after that, definitely found myself in a place where I wanted to get back to more rapidly iterating and, and building and, and having fun with all that kind of stuff. And so that was why I found myself at Yearn. And then at that point, I was pretty set that I was going to move on from Maker just kind of when the opportunity arose and figure out what I was going to do next. And I had a good friend reach out and say, hey, I, I know these guys who are starting a new project. Would you want to um, kind of read what their kind of docs are looking like in their idea? Because he knew that I was relatively knowledgeable about uh, on-chain strategies and, and farming and stuff like that. Uh, and so that was Element Finance. And so I ended up after kind of talking with Will and Johnny, the the co-founders, I decided to join that team and help them out kind of as someone who knew a lot about Yearn and knew a lot about strategies. And so the idea of Element is basically to uh, take uh, deposited positions into yield-bearing protocols and kind of cut up that, that position into two separate tokens, one which is your principal and one, one which is your interest, and those are um, based over a deposit that's kind of like a tranched or time-locked. And so I was helping a lot there with writing the code to integrate with Yearn and, and ideating on kind of what the value proposition of this stuff would be and, and why it's valuable to be able to separate your principal and interest tokens. And that was a really, really fun project to be a part of. And so I was there for about five months Mm. Uh, and I think they're going to launch relatively soon, and I'm really excited to uh, be able to take part in that launch and kind of see what happens there. But at the same time, I was also starting to dabble in NFTs, and I found NF- uh, NBA Top Shot. I'm a huge basketball fan. Okay. And so, like, I previously, uh, but like before, kind of COVID and everything, I was playing. I was playing pretty intense uh, NBA Daily Fantasy and had my own like models for scoring and stuff, and I was. I I'd watch a lot of basketball. And so for me, it just like totally clicked in my head. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. I, uh, 
and NFTs of basketball players. Let's go. Wow. And I, I aped in a little bit harder than I probably should have. I mean, it worked out, but um, like in retrospect, it's like, oh yeah, I, was, I put a lot of money into this thing. Wow. But it was one of those things where I just, I really, I loved what I was doing. And I, so I didn't, I wasn't even really consciously doing it. I mean, this, this is what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the episode, the, the NFTs and how you're kind of involved in that space. But I wrote like a few months ago, we interviewed Andre and Trevor. We did this episode about NFTs, music and media kind of. Mm-hmm. And after that, I wrote a piece where it's like, I can't imagine myself buying one of these things. But part of the reasons, this is what I kind of, the conclusion I came to is like, the reason is, is the content, the underlying content isn't something that I'm in love with mm-hmm. yet. But like there are things I am in love with, like con- types of media I really love. Now, if you combine that with NFTs, and that's where like the sort of mind experiment goes, where it's like, if you combine something you love with an NFT, would you then ape into it? And it sounds like you, like they just sort of, they did the combination that you wanted right at, right off the bat. Yeah, exactly. And that's where, that's where it clicked with me. And so I had previously been following along with CryptoPunks and I was like, I had considered buying a couple back in the summer and when they were less than one ETH per and uh, but you like, didn't. why would I do that? I didn't because I was like, why would I do that yeah. when I could yield farm with it, with that same Ethereum? Um, and obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. there. I wish <laughs> I had a couple more CryptoPunks than I do right now. Um, but yeah, so Topshop for me, it kind of like you were saying, it unlocked to me like, okay, now I, I get this because previously I was like, okay, why, do, why would I care about crypto kitties or or crypto punks and all these yeah. different things like sure they have an interesting story but they're not really like a narrative that fits what i'm interested in and top shot was the first thing that really did that and so i spent a lot of my free time between september and november december even uh like either browsing the top shot marketplace working on like off-market deals or all these crazy things i was i had written my own a bunch of google sheets that was doing analytics on all the moments and stuff got way too into the weeds but it was just it was like just fun for me it didn't feel like i was making some super sharp investment that was going to do well financially and at that point it kind of at the same time made it really clear to me the value proposition of all nfts and at this point like now i do own CryptoPunks and I bought more because I get it. And they have cool, like a cool story. Mm-hmm. Let's hear what happened to you with the NBA Top Shot. So you said you you went in too hard, maybe. Yeah. Well, so I, I had a couple of good connections with a couple of the, the larger NFT collectors and, and more like market maker style NFT people. Uh, and so they weren't really interested in basketball and I was. And so I, I, I felt that I had a bit of an edge where I could be like, hey, I want to buy a bunch of this player from you that you don't really know that much about yeah. or don't really care about. Uh, and so I was generally like offering them an off-ramp from Topshop because <gasps> it was at that point it was very, very hard to withdraw. It still is now, but not it's not as bad as it used to be. Uh, and so I would buy stuff at a discount to offer them an off-ramp into Ethereum. And then back in January, a daily fantasy guy, now like writer doing a lot of cool stuff uh, named Jonathan Bales put out a, a piece about how him and some of his friends bought a John ja Morant moment for $35,000. And that kind of kicked off like a tidal wave. Whoa. And so there was a couple websites that would show you like your account balance or like your general idea of how much your account was worth. Mm-hmm. And over the course of like three weeks, my account went from being worth like $200,000, which was a little more than the amount I put in, but not very much. To I think at its peak it was almost at sixteen million. Oh my god! It's it's gone down significantly <laughs> from then. <laughs> also, there was an article that came out about your experience with Top Shot that 
that Tarun actually shared with me. That was one of the things that I read about you before I met you. So you were kind of the the poster child in a way, like you were the example of like, what, here's what, if, you know, if you're lucky girls and boys, here's what you can do. <laughs> yeah, that, that is definitely the weirdest part of this simulation that we live in uh, for sure. But, but really, I think honestly what that actually comes down to and what I've been incredibly thankful for is the dumb luck of Topshot going crazy and me being one of the largest collectors has opened up a ton of doors for me uh, just of new friends and people that I've met who have been so just so kind and and really great to get to know and great to work with people who I'm excited like I feel like I've made lifelong friendships because of this mm. uh, and one of those guys uh, one of the guys who bought the John Morant for 35,000 Peter Jennings and so he is also a big daily fantasy guy really successful and he uh, reached out to myself and uh, MBL267, who was the other guy in the article, about his friend who worked for the Wall Street Journal who was looking to do a, a Top Shot article. And so we had a couple calls with him. And then I had like a really weird hour-long photo shoot with someone from the Wall Street Journal. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, how do you take a picture of a Top Shot star? Well, so she brought a basketball. I, I, I don't own a basketball. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so we like walked around Brooklyn for a while and took some pictures. And then it's funny, like, so that picture we ended up using is in my se the second bedroom of my apartment, which is a home office for myself and my girlfriend. And I didn't know we were going to take pictures inside. And I was like, oh, should I clean up the office? She's like, no, it's fine. We probably won't use one of these. And then she didn't. There's just like <laughs> crap on my desk and like clothes on the floor. But That's crazy. it's fine. So what does it mean, like, when you make this changeover, you, like, you have gone from farming, I guess, to now you're on Top Shot. But is this your job? Is now this your job? Like, do you spend every day looking at these NFTs and trading them? Or was it more like this was a side thing that kind of blew up? Uh, I would say more so that um, Okay. there was a period of time where I was spending a lot of time per day on it. And kind of, you know, I think... Crypto has taught this lesson many, many times, especially in the crypto space. If you feel like there's kind of an asymmetric risk-reward ratio, the best thing you can do is just like kind of dive in head first and see what happens and figure everything else out later. Totally. And I, I was lucky as well to have a, a couple of guys who were also pretty confident in the platform who I would I considered smart and would talk to, and we would kind of talk about strategy of what we we're going to buy and sell together, who I think we all kind of were able to help convince each other that this was like a really good product. We all came from extremely different backgrounds. Uh, I was the only really, really crypto native one. One of them is like runs an education startup. The other one was a Wall Street guy. And neither of those guys are really crypto savvy. One of them like doesn't even really own crypto. And so that to me kind of made me feel more confident in it because I was talking with guys who were all interested in like buying these things. One, because they thought it would go up in price, but also because they were really excited about the, pl the platform and wanted to yeah. be a part of it and really enjoyed what they were doing. And so it made me just really, really confident. And so for a period of time, I was probably spending like a full-time job amount of hours just thinking about it and, and doing things. But then, you know, at a certain point, I got to the point where I was like, okay, I've put enough money into this. I don't need to put any more money into this thing. If it goes well, I'm going to have money. If it doesn't, I'm going to lose this money. And <laughs> I'm, at, I'm at a point where I feel good about the the risk reward ratio. Fair um, enough. By the way, I just realized I keep asking you like, was this your job? <laughs> and I'm sorry about that. It's also, it's such a dumb question to ask in this space. Like, I mean, if somebody asked me that, it's like, ah, they're all my jobs. All the things are my <laughs> jobs at some point. Cause, and it's also my life. I don't know. It's like, there's a combination happening and a lot of it's just interest. You're following something that you're into. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think that it makes sense. It's like a weird 
that's another weird thing in crypto is I feel like, you know, people do have jobs and like where they're paid hourly, but at the same time, it's such a, like, it's a constant, a constantly moving thing that is just always changing and always evolving. And so there's a lot of things you can do that can like take up a lot of your time that aren't your job and that you can still find like extremely interesting and are worth it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're somewhat like at peace with whatever happens in the Top Shot world. You've, you've kind of like explored it to the point where you, your interest has been fulfilled. You're like, you're just going to leave it there. But at the same time, like the NFT market, like you must know quite well how that's doing. Like what is happening in the NFT market right now? Like what's your, what are your thoughts on that? That's one of the other funny things that have kind of come out of Top Shot is I now do a weekly live stream with some of the uh, some other top shot guys called club top shot that's like a very very casual like youtube stream we had on jaw rule a few weeks ago and it, it was oh so weird God. and so fun um <laughs> yeah like jaw rule got high with us on a live stream talking about did, did top you shot. ask him about fire festival uh so he made one backhanded comment. So Ja Rule is an insanely large collector. He had some crazy stuff in his apartment or his house. Not an apartment. He's too rich to have an apartment. Um, okay. <laughs> but he had one card that he was showing us and he said that it was fire. But like it felt like he knew what he was saying. And then he actually did talk a bit. He sold a Firefest NFT. And he, he talked about it for what? a second. Yeah, it sold for yeah, like six I figures. I heard about these. But he was saying, I think it was kind of like a closing a chapter in his life in a way uh, uh but i i was shocked he came off as i i expected like nothing from him and he came off as the nicest dude who was extremely thoughtful about collecting i was i was really really taken aback um but he was he was like a really really good hang it was funny <laughs> um but sorry to go back to your original question um so so yeah i, I definitely do at this point with top shot specifically I'm not really putting more money into it. Uh, that would be extremely irresponsible, I think, <laughs> just based on my general situation in life. But I do still keep up with it pretty well. And I, I still use the site. I, they have like challenges. I'll go and complete them sometimes if I think it's a good risk reward. But yeah, so I definitely am keeping up with NFTs pretty consistently. And at this point, I, I don't only own Top Shots. I have CryptoPunks and I used to have some hash masks. I think I sold all of them. But do you do you believe that at this moment in the NFT life cycle that it was overhyped and that it's on the way down or do you feel like yeah I'm I'm really curious what your what your thoughts are maybe of this moment. It's not like obviously in the future we don't know, but I think so. Well, so I think I've actually been thinking about this a bit, especially because of the NFT very, very quick rise and fall that happened. Although, I mean, like CryptoPunks are still doing pretty good. They're, they kind of just rise and rise. Mm. Um, but kind of everything else has, has had a bit of a rise and fall. I think that we're going to continue to see bubbles of these things like rise and pop faster and faster because of the Internet. I think the Internet's just going to keep accelerating these these things because, it's, you know, the time it takes to disseminate the information of what is this and why is it cool has gone from like years to hours. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely think that uh, it was overhyped, but overhyped is a hard word. I think that NFTs are like amazing and game changers for a lot of different things. So maybe overhyped isn't the right word, but maybe just overbought for the amount of like participants in the market. For the use case almost. Yeah, yeah. And it, it reminds me a lot of thinking about either like the dot-com bubble or stuff built on Ethereum in, in 2017, where there's going to be some really cool stuff that stands the test of time and it going up and down a couple hundred percent in the, like the spring of 2021 is going to be irrelevant. 
but then there's gonna be a lot of stuff that no one cares about after a few years yeah totally probably speaking of things that will hopefully last the test of time let's talk about your project you have a project called fractional i'm curious about like the origin story of this like how old is it and let's talk about what it is yeah so naturally a lot of my kind of initial thoughts about it came because of top shot which i think just makes sense because of my kind of uh introduction into really taking nfts very seriously but a lot of my conversations with a few of the other larger collectors was, I want to buy this moment for $25,000. I think it's worth a million dollars. Is anyone actually going to spend a million dollars on it? You know, what's the addressable market of people who have seven figures they want to spend on a basketball gif? Yeah. Uh, which it seems like it's not none. It seems like <laughs> there's, there's someone. That's crazy. Um, and so, you know, then it just obviously reevaluate what that means to the larger numbers. Mm-hmm. And so that got me. And, and a lot of people at the time were fractionally going in on top shot moments but just not trustlessly that was just like a group of friends yeah, yeah. It was just a group of friends who were know, either agreeing to or giving one of their friends cash and then they were mm-hmm. buying it and just custodying it in one of the accounts um, which works at small scale but realistically you have to have better solutions than that in the long term um, and so at the time this was i guess like early february i uh i basically just like spent a weekend coding up kind of what it would look like to have a like a fractional vault of an NFT that would give out shares and then you would have a, a reserve price. And if someone were to meet that reserve price with Ethereum, you could buy out the shares. And so I kind of coded this up over a weekend, just no front end or anything, just some, some smart contract code. And I actually reached out to Tarun because I knew that he had, or the robot, I should say, had some involvement with NFTX. And so I just wanted to like get his opinion because we, you know, we've, I didn't know Tarun crazy well at the time, but we had exchanged some DMs and yeah, you know, Twitter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it's funny because you guys actually live in the same city, but you yeah. just like never cross paths. <laughs> no, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it is a big city. Yeah. I mean, now I guess, we have, but <laughs> now, <laughs> now we have, but hopefully many more times. Mm. But yeah, so I just reached out to him and I was like, hey, I have this idea is like kind of what I've been working on. Um, I just like spent some time doing this. I'm curious what your thoughts are. And kind of just pretty quickly, I had been wanting to do my own thing. And I had thought about that before doing Element even. And uh, it kind of just felt like as good a time as ever to, to do that. Yeah. And it's like a thing you have experienced maybe even more than most. Yeah. Like you, you, you've gone through this cycle fully. Yeah, totally. And, and I, th- I do think that, that fractionalization kind of does bring some interesting like DeFi style stuff to to nfts uh and so I, I i feel very fortunate that i think that i found myself in kind of a nice position where i i have experience in both of these things to a level that not a ton of other people do um just based on my circumstances so yeah so really the the focus of what we're trying to build at a super basic level is how can we make something that's really easy for a, someone to kind of lazily buy some percentage of of a crypto punk or uh a LeBron James moment or all these different things. Uh, there's going to be, I think there's going to be a ton of different really awesome and really complex DAOs and things like Pleaser DAO, which has spun up to mm-hmm. uh, where it's, it's not explicit fractionalization of an NFT and, and sharing the pieces, but you're going to have these DAO groups that are coming in and buying stuff. But uh, this is more focused on just the really basic lazy version of that. What, what does it mean to lock up an NFT and people can buy a bit of it and 
then maybe someone will buy out the entire thing. And so that's really been the focus. Is that how it kind of works? So you, the fractionalization, I think, makes a lot of sense. I think anyone can understand that. You take some fixed thing and then you break it up into lots of mini parts and each part represents a minor ownership in that, like a stake almost. But is the idea here that it would like go across all the platforms, like that it would work on the NBA Top Shot and on some of like the Ethereum based NFTs? Or is this more like, it, like I, I'm just trying to picture, is this like a, you, you already coded it in Solidity, so I'm guessing it lives more in the Ethereum world. Is it meant to be kind of a concept that's then expanded out to other ecosystems? Yeah. So in the short term, obviously, I'm insanely bullish on Ethereum. I spent spent a lot of my time over the last like four years building on Ethereum. Um, and so to me, that was just like the natural place to kind of start building this thing. Uh, I, I think in the long term, it'll be really, really interesting to see how kind of the multi-chain NFT world plays out because I do think that there's going to be a much larger retail and casual focus than um, DeFi or a lot of the like financial stuff. I've been trying to convince my friends for years to get into crypto. It took me minutes to get them to buy a Top Shot moment. The, wow. So that, that kind of stuff. It's just like, to me, I think yeah. it lends itself to a, a less sophisticated not, not in a bad way, uh, but just a group who doesn't care as much about a lot of different things. So I, I don't want to totally count out uh, something like a Flow blockchain or some of these other chains that are coming up that are more NFT specific. Um, but to me, I naturally just first going to place my bets on Ethereum and, and build on Ethereum. Um, but I do think I do think the idea of kind of being in a cross-chain world with NFTs in different places is definitely possible. At least right now, it is, it's happening. Whether or not that plays out long-term, I don't know. But I wouldn't be shocked to see to see fractional living on multiple chains uh, at some point in the future. It's not it's not a protocol though, is it? Like, is it a product? I'm kind of curious. And and what stage is it at too? Yeah, <laughs> I'm throwing a few questions no, right. your way. <laughs> uh, I think the protocol versus product question is really interesting. I would argue that we are trying to make something that could be considered a protocol. Um, I guess like the question is, what do you consider a protocol? Mm-hmm. I I don't really know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not sure I have like a finite answer to what is a protocol versus a product. Um, but I want to make something and we are actively working to make something that doesn't have to live on our website, uh, that anyone can come in and fractionalize anything and build on top of us and and mm. create products on top of the fractional smart contracts. So in that sense, I, I do think of it as a protocol for fractionalization as far as the smart contracts go. But at the same time, we're pretty interested in building a really nice front end and and, and UI that is a, a great product for people who want to come in and buy a fraction of a CryptoPunk or something along those lines. So it's kind of hard to say. And as far as how far along we are, we just finished up an audit end of last week or, or middle of last week or so, and it, everything went pretty good. So we're hoping that very soon, maybe by the time people are listening to this, people can, can test out our product on uh, Girly Testnet and kind of get an idea of what that's going to look like. It's just all, you know, a fake CryptoPunks smart contract and you can mint yourself a punk and fractionalize it and then go to SushiSwap and sell the fractional shares or provide liquidity. Um, And so hopefully if that goes well, it won't be too long until we're able to have people fractionalizing on on mainnet. We don't have a, a specific launch date kind of keyed in right now, but we're definitely hoping that it's sooner rather than later. Cool. Is this using one of the like ERC? I know that there was like ERC 721 and then there's these extensions. And I I can't remember the number of the one that 
allows like the NFT to have hats and accessories, Remember, like the game example, where you have like the one NFT that is standalone and then you can actually use another standard to connect other objects to it. Is it using that or is it completely separate from that? So I'm not sure exactly which one you're talking about. I know there's ERC-1155, which was, I think, made by Engine. And it that's like what Rarible uses for their NFTs. And so that one allows for you to have an NF- NFTs with additions of more than one. So out of the gate, we are not going to be supporting that. It'll just be ERC-721s. Um, but it's we're very much so ex- extensible to be able to support that in the future. Um, should we need to? So yeah, the, um, the, it was ERC-928, but I think it's since been replaced by this maybe ERC-1155. Okay. I don't have that handy, but... yeah. Yeah, I guess anyone can correct us if we got that wrong. Sadly, I haven't been able to memorize every single ERC yet. <laughs> ERC that's related to NFTs. Yeah. Fair enough. But actually, I think something that might be might be super uh, useful is to maybe go through the mechanics of like, hey, I own an NFT and like how I fractionalize it, how things work. Because I think actually for a, an audience that includes a lot of developers, it might actually be good to like walk through the mechanics of like, how these things are made, what they look like. And I would say, at least from my purview, it's it's definitely a protocol. Like there are smart contracts that are auctions and like there's tokens involved that are made. And so, you know, I think maybe if we walk through the mechanics, it'll be a little bit clearer. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. I'll I'll go through kind of like the life cycle of an NFT and what that what that would look like in the fractional protocol and what that what it does to the NFT. So say I came with a, a CryptoPunk and I wanted to fractionalize it. Uh, well, one, you'd have to have a wrapped CryptoPunk because we accept the ERC-721 tokens, not CryptoPunk tokens. But then at that point, you would uh, create what we're calling a vault. And that vault cares about a couple unique things. And then a couple things it has you put in, but it doesn't. it's not very opinionated on them. Uh, so you're going to be creating an ERC-20 token, which is the, represents the ownership of the NFT. And so that ERC-20 token needs to have a total supply, a number of decimals, which actually we force you to have 18 decimals for the sake of everyone's well-being, um, and then a, a name and a symbol. Um, and so the, the protocol is not opinionated on those things. Uh, you can name it whatever you want. But then alongside that, some of the more important stuff is one a reserve price, which is going to be kind of the initial price in Ethereum to buy out that vault. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll get into how a buyout works in a little bit. And then alongside that, we also need an auction length, which again, with the buyout is going to be a part of, of that system. Uh, and then lastly, we have what we call a, a curator fee. And this is a a fee that the NFT originator is able to set, which allows them to essentially take almost like an asset under management style fee from the from the vault that they create. And this uh, can be set in a range. And the way that that fee is paid out is in the form of total supply inflation. So uh, let's say you create a vault and it has 100 ownership shares. Then you set your fee to 5% annually. And then over the course of a year, the vault would eventually accrue up to 105 ownership shares. And those would be sent to the NFT originator. And so what that allows for initially is in a market where maybe it's not very desirable to to fractionalize an NFT because uh, NFTs are kind of going parabolic. You are able to basically turn your NFT into something that 
is providing you some interest essentially, and you can you know take some profit off of your NFT and and still earn some shares. Uh, but in the long term, what I think is really interesting there is it allows for artists that fractionalize things to kind of create a new revenue stream that isn't secondary market sales. It kind of it encourages diamond hands as opposed to to weak hands with with uh, their collectors. So like for example, if an artist has a bunch of collectors who really like the artwork and don't want to sell it, they're never going to have secondary sale mm. profits. Whereas in this, if you have a bunch of collectors who really like all own 25% of the fractional shares of your piece, even if they never sell it, you're still going to be seeing uh, revenue from that, which I think is really cool. Interesting. Yeah, that's kind of one of the problems with like NFTs being sold to an owner who really loves it, they may just emotionally love it so much that they never resell it and the artist doesn't get that sort of secondary market resale benefit. Yeah, and so I think that's a really interesting dynamic that could that'll play out. I'm I'm very curious to see what what kind of curator fees are set and and what the market kind of determines is a fair curator fee, but uh, I think we'll just need kind of need time to see what that looks like. For this, are you thinking primarily like the top shot model where it's like art? that you're fractionalizing? Or is the vision a lot broader than that? Well, so I think in the short term, kind of the, the low-hanging fruit of, of Top Shot and CryptoPunks and all that is definitely the the current addressable market of, of fractionalization. But I do think that it's a lot wider reaching than that, kind of as we see real-world assets come onto Ethereum. And you saw that with uh, Maker just recently. They started onboarding their first real-world asset. Um, I think that what is able to be fractionalized is going to continue to uh, to expand beyond just artwork. I, I kind of, in general, my feelings on NFTs is that we're in like a really interesting kind of proving grounds right now where, where people are going to be building out a lot of cool primitives and um, applications that can use NFTs. And the artwork and everything that people are trading right now is just kind of like the testing tokens for all of the actual like insanely valuable stuff that in my mind should be an nft or could be an nft like buildings and uh esports teams and all these crazy things there's been a couple different kind of models around fractionalization some have been more like heavily dao focused and stuff like pleaser dao kind of is moving in that direction and then other ones that are not quite as much and so that's it's gonna be really interesting to see kind of as this all plays out what do these fractional tokens look like? Are they something that trades above what people consider the the fair market value of the asset that's locked up and all these different things? Um, it's going to be very interesting to see that all play out. Hmm. Are there like previous DeFi models that influenced your thinking around this? Or like, do you already see some strategies that could be influenced by some of that, excuse the term, degen activity that you <laughs> engaged in earlier this summer <laughs> at some point last year? Last yeah. summer, last year. Um, <laughs> Well, so I think one of the cool things that could really pop up from this would be uh, kind of a, an interesting way to do lending and borrowing protocols with NFTs. There's there's currently a project called NFTFi, which is basically like a peer-to-peer NFT lending marketplace. Um, but I think turning the turning an NFT into ERC20 tokens allows for more like compound or Aave style markets around them and stuff, which I think would be really interesting. Mm. And that would kind of create the ability for you to make more educated bets on NFTs, uh, whether that's like trying to go long on an NFT or short on it, which I think is really interesting and not quite as easy to do in something like NFTFi, I think. Uh, or at least it's a little bit more of a you know manual process because it's peer-to-peer where you have to have someone agree to your terms and kind of lock into uh, a more structured loan. Hmm. 
Yeah, and, and for some historical context, so Ave before they came, Ave was Eflend, which was peer to peer, just and very similar to MMT Fire, and it just could not get traction because it was impossible for people to figure out a price mm. what the interest rate was. Um, and I think like once they moved to the pooled model, of course, they were able to grow much more quickly. And I think that's in general, probably the same thing for NFTs. Although, of course, the notion of like price discovery for NFTs is difficult, but I think it's improved a lot when fractionalized. I guess one thing that maybe is is interesting to think about though is like, let's say I own an NFT and I go and fractionalize it. If I sell more than 50% of the shares, then I basically have exceeded control of the reserve price, right? So like I lose the ability to have like a right of first refusal. So is that like, how do you foresee the dynamics changing there when like people fractionalize NFTs, but they keep a right of first refusal versus those that don't? And like, you know, because I imagine that's something that happened in Top Shot. And that's, that's something I haven't seen kind of... In DeFi, you don't see... There's no right of first refusal yeah, in DeFi. It's a, I don't really know what's going to happen there. I, I've talked to a couple people who have been interested in fractionalizing stuff and have said, you know, I want to keep more than 50% to, to kind of make sure that I still have some some say in whether or not this, this thing would, would sell. But I, I don't know. I, I think probably a part of it depends on what's being fractionalized and why it's being fractionalized. I think that maybe for some people, fractionalizing an NFT is just a different way to to find exit liquidity from that from that NFT. And in that case, maybe they don't care, and so they'll they'll sell ninety percent of it because they just you know they don't want to own this NFT anymore. And it was easier to do a Dutch auction for the for the fractional tokens than it was to list it on OpenSea and wait for someone to buy it. But I definitely think that for people who are trying to build more like unique and uh, wider reaching projects on top of a fractionalized NFT or fractionalized basket of NFTs, I do think that that's going to be uh, a point of contention for a while is, you know, say I have these grandiose ideas for I'm going to make take this thing and I'm going to fractionalize it. And then people who own fractional tokens for it will be able to do X, Y, and Z because they own part of the, the ERC-20 tokens. Uh, and so it'd suck if you build this whole thing out and have this whole grand idea and then you sell 60% of it and then it gets, you know, a buyout triggers a week later and all of a sudden all your plans have <laughs> now been ruined. So that'll be a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, because things like OpenSea and Rarible, like the people can make kind of make bids continuously and people do just like make a lot of annoying bids all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's like this weird UX thing that happens. So kind of curious how you foresee that impact it like there you know the, this idea that there's like an auction triggered is kind of funny compared to DeFi. so in DeFi, an auction is a bad thing it's like there's a liquidation like the loan is going under but here the auction is a good thing in the sense that it's supposed to be like liquidity event yeah where we're like we're cashing out and so somehow somehow merging those two mental states i think is like the the key to these products that like people haven't really figured out but fractionalization certainly seems like the one of the necessary yeah. pieces. Yeah, for sure. And it is definitely, it also comes with some like serious risks where if there is an auction where the, the buyout ends up going for significantly less than what the token was trading at, then everyone who was trading the token takes a haircut. Um, and so, you know, there have to be token holders who are making sure they're keeping track of the reserve price and or really in any, in any fractional thing. I don't think token holders want to see the NFT sold for less than than they bought the the fractional shares for. Um, but that's also just kind of a, a part of markets. That's the rough part of that. I want to talk about PleaserDAO 
and how this relates to all of this. So it's a different project, right? It's not, it's not closely related to fractional. And yet, like, why, like, is there a connection point? Is there something of like commonality between these two projects? Maybe, maybe we should give the history of Pleaser Down. First. Please do. So basically, People Pleaser, who uh, is a good friend of uh, both of ours in various regards, she basically actually, like, in summer, she did this amazing, like, set of illustrations for Sushi Swap's launch and for Ave's launch. And uh, Mateo at Uniswap messaged me and was like, hey, can I get an introduction to People Pleaser? So I introduced him sometime in summer. And then I just didn't hear anything about it for a while. So I was like, okay, maybe it didn't work out. Um, but then like, you know, in April sometime, maybe March, late March, Uniswap V3 kind of has this launch announcement. And as a teaser, they put out this video that she made. And she she's an artist, I guess. She's a animator, visual artist, or... Yeah, she used to work on game, designing game. Okay, cool. Um, then she, she's been like kind of a freelance DeFi graphic designer. She's like done every DeFi protocol, nice. like done some piece <laughs> for like literally every protocol. Cool. Um, probably the most in-demand DeFi artist that exists. Like every project has been trying to commission pieces. And she's one person, so obviously, obviously it's like hard to, to do. But And so like this piece is pretty epic because it kind of like marked kind of this big change for Uniswap. And then, you know, I think around that time there was a lot of violence towards Asian Americans. And so she decided to put sell an NFT of the piece. Uh, with all the proceeds donated to uh, like Asian American violence uh, nonprofits, well, anti-violence. Sorry, I guess that that sounded like, <laughs> but uh, you you got you got one. Um, yeah. And so then, basically, I think it was at auction, and the price started going up. And you know, I think Andy and I both have different stories of how we got involved in this. But I, I was at a restaurant, a little bit inebriated, and um, I just got this message of like, send ten ETH here before this amount of time. And I was like, well, you know, who knows what this is, but sure, let's let's roll the dice. From on. from anyone? Was it from an no, anonymous from, from, account from, on tel- no, Telegram? No, no, from What's someone happening? who I want no, no, from someone who I won't dox. But like okay. you know, I, I, someone, I, someone you knew and trusted, I guess. Yes, yes, okay. yes. And they were like, yeah, we're like, we want to buy the piece. We're gonna pull together some funds. And I was like, sure. This is basically like the the problem that Andy is talking about, about like pulling together money to buy one piece. This is okay. kind of that. And, you know, get added to some telegram group. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, we won this $500,000 piece, which was, I think, Foundation's biggest sale at that time for them. So you wait, were you pooling together to buy the people pleaser? Yes. Like image NFT? Yes. Okay. Yes. The Uniswap uh, NFT that XY she was selling to raise money. Okay, so like there, there's basically a collection of people who got together in order to buy this. Yes. Okay. And then you know the 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 group uh, and then people pleaser. You know, I think the the group gave her some fraction of the token, so they tokenized. Basically, made a token for voting on what pieces to buy. Okay. Uh, Mar- Mariano from Maker was kindly our uh, our governance czar and set, <laughs> set everything up. Okay. And uh, then, you know, I think there was this crazy excitement and like tons of people were, who were like, I want to join, I want to join, I'll add money or whatever. And so we're like, ah, well, we don't really, the goal of this thing was to have like a sort of social mission and to buy paintings that like have a social component and also represent sort of the values that people pleasers are 
does. I think of these things as like community-owned art museums, right? Like you're never going to own a share of the Met, but at least here you can kind of own a share of these things. And the way you're doing this is through DAO. So you're basically DAO, just using yeah. like a DAO infrastructure kind of a I don't know which one is Unis- it. We're using compound slash Uniswap governance contracts. Like okay, pretty simple. So you, so you have this DAO and you're pooling money in order to buy NFTs, and in a way you're fractionalizing the NFTs. Yes, uh, and then somehow there's this decision on the Snowden piece that the Snowden piece was the thing we had to buy, and we had to raise money for that. And so <laughs> somehow we added new members. That part I won't really get into any details <laughs> on. But you know, new members were added, capital came in, and we had this crazy bidding war with this anonymous person. And then the piece ended up going to please draft for $5.5 million. Wow. Dollars. And now you own it. But like, so are you waiting to eventually sell it? So Andy, Andy, Andy can now tell you where, where the, the true long-term goals go. Okay. Yeah, so I don't think we've had an official snapshot vote or anything to ratify doing this, but uh, generally... The plan is to fractionalize the piece on fractional. Interesting. What exactly we're going to do from there also has not totally been decided. I would say it's a very, uh, you know, very freeform group right now. Where we're still figuring a lot out, um, but that is the general plan. And I think the idea is that we could potentially then, you know, maintain ownership of of the piece to some extent. Uh, and kind of, I think it's fitting for a for a Snowden piece something to give give it to the people, um, mm-hmm. and then also uh, hopefully raise some capital through that to be able to figure out what's next and go from there. But uh, again, it's all like if none of that happened, I, you know, if, if we did something totally different with the fractional tokens, <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked. Um, but as of right now, it's the general idea. The pleaser Dow sounds like it just was created by a community spontaneously but like is everyone cool with using it with fractional or is it like that's, that's why there's governance votes <laughs> right okay. the, the, the nft can only be moved by governance yeah the governance contract owns the nft this is an amazing experiment yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's a lot of fun cool. it's really cool <laughs> i know it's like the launching of your project through this experiment sounds given like the story we've heard also of your background this is so fitting and so awesome it's like learning in the moment as this thing is like moving a million miles an hour and all these people want to throw money in it. <laughs> yeah, totally. I and mean, like I have, I just, I pulled up like my first Twitter DM from this. I won't say from who. It was just me and four other, three other people. I'm just, yo, let's get this NFT. Someone suggested Tenny Beach <laughs> and that was it. And then all of that turned into a Telegram group and way more people. And Amazing. Is People Pleaser involved in the DAO? Yes, yeah, she is now. After okay. the the piece was purchased, <laughs> she is a, a a partial owner. So amazing. So maybe to to wrap up the interview, what are you seeing kind of coming down the pipeline for NFTs? Obviously, fractionalization is one of these things, but you know what else? What else do you think you're looking forward to maybe in the space? Yeah, so I'm really I'm very curious to see what happens with um, the Christie's CryptoPunk auction that should be happening pretty soon. I think that's going to be really interesting. And there's a chance that it just totally re-rates CryptoPunks. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that and kind of seeing what happens there. I think there's also a good chance that that could be the like local top of CryptoPunks for a little bit, which wouldn't be shocking considering how the Beeple stuff went and all that. Uh, 
But I think in the long term, I'm, I'm really interested in you know fractionalization and all the different things that can come with NFTs and in, in creating these really interesting, uh, sometimes gamified, sometimes just cool money Legos, you know, you know, just building out the the ecosystem around them from like just buying and collecting is awesome and really cool. But there's just so much more that's capable of being done. And I think that these last couple of months have hopefully injected enough money and excitement into the space that over the next you know year or so, we're just going to see some really cool, crazy, interesting projects that are going to come out. Uh, and I think that you know as, as people continue to build, that's what I'm most excited for is just other smart people who are building stuff and creating other interesting nft legos in the same way that you know for for a while DeFi was just a few interesting protocols that were doing stuff and now we have this crazy ecosystem with so much going on uh, i'm sure there's you know a lot of stuff that people haven't even considered with nfts i would add uh one of the things i find the most miraculous about this story plus in general kind of the way the analogs to like the last cycle like 2017 that i would i would make to, for nfts is like during the last cycle, there's obviously a lot of froth and fake stuff that doesn't work or make sense, like fractionalizing farms in India and selling them on the blockchain or something. Like I remember seeing things like that. But amidst all of kind of like in every good lie is a kernel of truth. And so like I tend to think like in every good kind of hype cycle, there's always a kernel of truth infrastructure wise. And last time it was DeFi stuff like the core tenets of DeFi, like people were raised, Ave ICO'd for Ethland, Bancor ICO'd. Mm. They may not have been the main winners. I mean, in Ave's case, you know, obviously they made it into the you know successful ICO. It wasn't a scam really provided use value to users. Uh, Bancor maybe halfway there, I would say. Mm. But like the idea is like, there's like all this infrastructure that comes from the hype cycle and like getting all these people into it, into like kind of these kind of last minute things. And I think NFT like infrastructure in general to like make it more useful and accessible and almost like interoperable in a weird way in the sense that like somehow I want my top shot NFTs to interact with my crypto punks. Mm -hmm. But like, we don't know exactly how that's going to happen. Um, I think like that's going to be the the cool stuff to, to see. And I, I think fractionalization is like one of those like core primitives that has to exist first. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, um, yeah, I feel a lot of uh, similarities from from 2017, like ETH ICOs and stuff to, to NFTs now, which has a lot of good and bad connotations to it. But I'm very, very excited about what the next couple of years are going to are going to hold. So, so I think DeFi and NFTs are going to intersect um, a lot more over the next couple of years, kind of as we're talking about the future. Like, where do you see that going and what are kind of the, the grape leaves tea leaves, whatever, the leaves that are predictive. I do love stuffed grape leaves, but uh, <laughs> um, I, I think the the thing that to me is just like an obvious use case for fractionalization outside of, uh, you know, the crypto collectibles and art world and into the DeFi world is uh, the upcoming Uniswap V3 liquidity tokens or LP tokens. Uh, so for those who aren't aware in Uniswap v3, um, because they have ranged liquidity as opposed to um, just generic liquidity, they have to identify uh, each user's LP position as uh, as an NFT as opposed to an ERC20 token. Oh. And so that's going to open up some really interesting things, but it's also going to break a lot of things. For example, 
uh, Uniswap v2 liquidity posi uh, pool positions are able to be used in MakerDAO as collateral to borrow against. In v3, that won't really be possible. Uh, at least right now, Maker doesn't support NFTs. Uh, so to me, fractionalizing those things kind of immediately helps to solve that problem and and address one of those pain points. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if in the long term, kind of as DeFi gets more, uh, continues to evolve and explore NFTs more and these worlds continue to merge, we're going to see more and more NFTs that uh, that represent positions in DeFi or or different things that we hold or do in DeFi. Um, I mean, Uniswap has gen generally been a trendsetter for a long time, and them doing this to me means probably other people will do it as well. And so I'm I'm very interested uh, and excited to see kind of what that whole DeFi fractionalized LP positions and whatever else comes from that holds. Cool. So thank you so much, Andy, for coming on the show and sharing all of this with us. What an amazing journey and also like very exciting stuff in the pipeline, it sounds like. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. This was a lot of fun. It's always fun to talk about okay. DeFi and crypto. I could do it all day. <laughs> of course. Same here. Tarun, thanks again for joining as the co-host. Thanks for having me. And I want to say a big thank you to Andre, the podcast producer, Henrik, the podcast editor, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.